the leading edge in the culture, the growing edge, the place where health is, is all in being a good collaborator, um, not being a dominator. Because when people have choice, they're going to go away from the dominators and gravitate to the good collaborators. And I would say that if you're going to be a good collaborator, you need to know how to embody what I will call the three harmonies. You need to be able to embody the harmony within yourself. You need to be able to embody a harmony with others. And, you, and out of that, you need to embody a harmony with nature. Um, and when you can do all those three things, then you are magnetic in terms of the, you know, people want to connect with you, they want to work with you, they want to do things with you. That's Dr. Robert Gilman, and this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. It's great to be back with you. This is episode number 10. We made it 10 episodes in. Um, so it's pretty exciting. I um, started this earlier this year and have been having wonderful conversations with some amazing people, uh, learning a lot, and uh, grateful for the experience and love sharing it and, and hearing other people's thoughts on our conversations as well. So um, with that, 10 episodes in, I'm going to do things a little bit different. I've heard from some people, um, gotten some feedback, and one of the things that I continue to hear was that your podcasts are way too long. How can I possibly spend two hours, three hours listening? And, and um, my initial reaction is, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. Listen to 20 minutes if you want. Listen to five minutes if you want. That's the great thing about this recording medium is that you can listen at your own convenience. You can, you know, turn on the episode while you're in the car, you get out of the car at the grocery store, you turn it off, you get back in the car, you can turn it back on. So that's one of the things that I really enjoy about podcasts myself and um, listening to them. However, I've also learned that it's important to take feedback, especially for the people who are listening to the conversations that you're having. So um, what I did for this podcast is I edited it. I edited it way down. So um, Robert and I actually sat down for a couple of hours, and um, I don't know what this is going to come out to because I haven't exported it. But um, but yeah, I took the parts of the conversation that I thought uh, would have the most impact and would be the most relevant and would be on the theme of creating a bright future now today. And what Robert does really well is he provides context, just like his institute's name. He provides context for where we are and uh, a better understanding of what's needed uh, to move from the empire era to the planetary era. Now, those are terms that he uses, and he'll explain those as we talk, but um, uh, really important for understanding where we are um, as a human species, where we're moving into, what are, what's the time that we're in now, and we're in this transition time. Um, and that's why it's applicable to the emerging future theme, which is really about 
listening to curious, compassionate, and courageous people who are co-creating our desired and emerging future. And right now in this transition time where there's turbulence, there's chaos, there's um, there's a lot of moving pieces, and um, sometimes it's easily, um, you can become easily disoriented. And Robert uh, is, a, is a very compassionate person and has taken his work in astrophysics, his work in sustainability, his work in local government, and um, just his general sense of curiosity and really empathy for other people and created um, a way to teach and empower people to uh, come together in community and not only learn the tools needed for this time, um, but also to create uh, community so that uh, there's support um, in and around ideas that people are creating. So his course is actually called Bright Future Now. And I took his course. I finished it uh, back in May and am now a part of the Bright Future Network, which is a global network of people who have taken the course and now are really working on some pretty amazing things. And I, uh, I got some ideas too from this course. And now I'm working on a project that that came out of um, my own learning during this course. So I'm grateful to Robert and for the work that he's doing. I highly recommend the course for anyone who just wants to have a better understanding of where we are. And I think this is really important too for for the entrepreneurial community or for people who are creating new things because what we need now are things that are relevant for this time. You know, what is needed and how can what we create actually meet those needs and and move things forward? So um, there's really an element of uh, the context for time. Like what 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 time is it right now? Um, uh, how can we how can we listen for a sign of the times? And I think that the the most uh, profound and meaningful work will come if there's a connection between those creative ideas and and um, for the context of where we are. So um, I hope you in, enjoy Robert as much as I did. Like I said, I cut this down. So this initial um, part of the conversation is um, Robert, we were, we were discussing uh, uh, his work in, in local government in he was uh, an elected official in the town of Langley, Washington, which is on Whidbey Island in the state of Washington. Um, so this is the this is where we jump in to the conversation and Robert reflecting on uh, working actually within uh, government and within that that system. Um, so I think it's particularly relevant, especially considering so much chaos and turbulence in our our current government here in the U.S. So. Uh, with that, here is Dr. Robert Gilman. Some of the things that I learned are that there are a lot more constraints on you as an elected official than people may realize. Hmm. You know, it looks like you get elected and then you're a decision maker and all that good stuff, um, especially in this local city government piece, not a, not necessarily a big city like Seattle, but, a, but the smaller cities where the people who are on the council are essentially volunteers or at least part-time, mm-hmm. that 
the the people who are the staff are much more influential in terms of what actually happens. Hmm. Um, if the staff like what you're providing, they're happy to have you, you know, pr- promote it. If they don't like it, they know that they will outlast you. Hmm. And there are all kinds of bureaucratic ways to make things not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I got to appreciate the degree to which the local staff is, is really important. And at a local level, in many ways, we have technocratic government instead of democratic government with democratic window dressing. Hmm. When you say local staff, what's an example of a position? A uh, planning director, okay. uh, uh, police chief. You uh, work for the city. You work for the city. Okay. Um, You're not elected. Okay. You, and you are, you are uh, technically, you are hired by the mayor. But what I saw with, I, I worked with two different mayors, and I was, I was really engaged, so I really mm-hmm. got to see the inside of this. And in many ways, when the requirements for being a mayor are as great for a town of a thousand people in the legal sense as they are for being the mayor of Seattle. Hmm. Um, I won't say it's totally equivalent. It isn't. But there, the challenge for people who are coming into that role is there's a really steep learning curve. And so it's understandable that very quickly the mayor discovers their dependency on the staff. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, the staff all of a sudden becomes their important constituency. So while it looks like the staff is under the authority of the mayor, in practice, that isn't the way it works. Ooh, fascinating. Um, so uh, it's, you know, and the staff people that we had here in Langley were, they definitely acted, I think, in by and large in the interests of the city. Um, you know, they, I, I, I want to give appropriate appreciation mm-hmm. for them. Um, but it was, you know, they were running the show. Okay. Um, and, and quietly and, you know, sort of in a certain sense behind the scenes. Yeah. But, um, but nevertheless, they were successfully running the show. Mm-hmm. So that was, and I can imagine translating that to like the federal government level. Right. And the federal bureaucracies, um, where there's a tremendous amount that happens at the, at that level that and i can i can appreciate some of the what we would often think of as right wing um frustration and anger with the regulation state uh-huh. uh, and the bureaucracies can be a pretty blunt instrument uh, not because of the people i mean the people in them often are trying the best they can but the structure isn't necessarily wonderful so it helped me to see the some of the deeper issues that we're going to have to deal with in terms of the structural changes that okay. we're going to have to make. And it's not like I've got great solutions right now, mm-hmm. but I'm uh, but I'm more aware of the the problems. Well, in bright future now, you talk about systems literacy, right? So I'm sure this uh, plays into kind of the foundation for what right. you created there. Yeah. 
Well, another fascinating thing for me about city government was the degree to which there were no visuals. We were dealing with complex issues and trying to do it all with language. Okay. Um, and you know from Bright Future Now that, mm-hmm. that, that, that that's recipe for trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the tradition within law and legislation and everything else is that it will all be done through language. Mm-hmm. Um, and language is limited. Yeah, because there's all that decoding, right? Right. That happens yeah. with language. And then to rely on your memory. Mm-hmm. Is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how often are, are, is, is our memory accurate right. enough? And then you're making decisions that affect other people. I mean, you can run right. into a whole yeah. mess of issues. And one of the things that it, it turns out, too, and I don't know particularly a solution for this, but the here in Washington State, uh, there's what's called the Open Public Meetings Act, which is has a lot of good sense behind it, which uh, requires that um, elected officials, council members, can't have any kind of uh, quorum uh, except in a public meeting, in an announced, advertised public meeting. So that means, th- and you can't even do it what's called a serial meeting. So, for instance, I can't, it, as, a, as a council member, I couldn't call one person and have a conversation with them and then call another person and then call a third person. We had five people on the council, so as soon as you hit three, you hit a quorum. Um, if I talked to two other council members about the same thing, then uh, without it being in an open public meeting, I was violating the Open Public Meetings Act. So there was no opportunity for that um, safe space to explore ideas. We were simply um, a kind of focus group, (laughs) if you will, that could respond to what was presented to us. But we couldn't be collaboratively creative. Oh, that's frustrating. So, I mean, I understand the intention behind it. Yeah. Like, hey, you're you're working for yeah. and on behalf of the right. people, therefore right. you can't do anything in secret. Right. However, we're going to create a structure that disallows you from engaging any sort of meaningful depth or, um, you know, developing trust, relationship, right. all those things that actually uh, – create meaning and understanding right, right. <laughs> at a deeper level yeah uh, we in in our project in seattle i mean we experienced some of that too mm-hmm. and especially with the um um wh- what is it the public disclosure yeah right law yeah where all city communication is available to the public mm-hmm. so how this is abused at least in our scenario was that, um, you know, we're pushing a project through and the people who don't want it to come through make public disclosure requests, which they're allowed to do right. as often as they like, right? which which they um, submit to the city. And then the city has to respond to those in a certain, in a certain yep. amount of time, right? And what it does is it bogs down everybody on the government because what what do they have to do is they have to pull all of their documentation, emails, communication, and print these documents and then submit them right. to whoever 
right. re- requested it. Right. And it it frustrates the the people who are working right within the city because they're not getting anything done. Yep. Because they show up in the morning and they've got another one of these things on their desk and they're like, oh, instead of working on this, I have to go through all of my emails and print all of this stuff out. Right. Because it's the law. Yeah. And you can be sure that it definitely constrains what the, those staff people in a in uh, what they're trying to accomplish positively. They are very cautious about what goes into anything that could become public request. Right. So then all of a sudden you're not willing to talk about <laughs> what you're supposed to be talking about. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, so then you don't get anything done. Right. Yeah. Nothing changes. So that's, I, I, um, and, and maybe this is sort of a good wrap up relative to the politics piece. Yeah. But, but I want to say that another thing that I saw was how easy it was to stymie things. Hmm. Um, that it's it forces government to be at best at the middle of the bell curve and generally lagging. Hmm. So it's the idea of having government be a driver for cultural change. Uh, it's not the way it works. Yeah. Um, not the you know most of the time. If you want to, if you really want to move cultural change forward outside the political arena is much more fruitful. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, can you name at least one success <laughs> that you had within government? Yes, yes. Uh, so um, in local governments control land use. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we have in Washington state what's called a comprehensive plan. In other places, it's called the general plan. Mm-hmm. Um and these need to be updated every so often. It's usually a task for um, a, a group of, you know, maybe four or five citizens plus the planner who yeah. just do it in a regular way. Well, um, so what I did was to organize a different way to go about updating the comprehensive plan. We had a group that involved 100 people, um, it broken up into various different subgroups, focusing on different things, and we pulled it all together and and um, came up with a, a comprehensive plan that had a lot more sustainable community aspects to it. Um, and there were, you know, there were some things in the comprehensive plan that never quite landed. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, but there were a lot of things that did. And in any case, we had a much broader uh, public engagement. And mm-hmm. Remember, we're a town of 1,000 people. So having 100 a, a people involved um, in something is a much more significant level of involvement than right. having uh, just a handful. So you changed the process, made it more inclusive yeah. and more sustainable. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, both changed the process and came out with an outcome that was um, – had a lot more forward-looking sustainability aspects to it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about you and uh, what I learned from Bright Future Now is that you're really good at um, looking at some sort of ambiguous thing or a way of uh, that something is accomplished and then creating a structure that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the mapping. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an, a, a really great ability to map things out. Mm-hmm. Um and to show kind of the flow of information and, um, you know, to your point about 
language, you know, mm-hmm. being the main communicator. Well, map mapping is another form of communication right. that is extremely helpful. Did you happen to map out your your process change for? Yeah, we did. Yeah, in various ways. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and had you know all kinds of community meetings with lots of visuals and flip charts yes. and you know all that stuff. Um, yeah. That's great. So then seven and a half years, and then were you starting to work on Bright Future Now? No, not not at that point. Okay. Um, the What does go back a little further was that the, the foundation stones, Okay. the ideas for those, uh, and I can describe them a little bit more, but the idea for that really came up, around, I think, around 2000, mm-hmm. if I remember back. It's somewhere in there. Um, I, I got the outline at that point the outline in 2000 yeah okay but hadn't um which i've tweaked a little bit but it's still pretty much the same outline Uh, and that's interesting because that's pretty close to the dark night of the soul yeah two years after yeah i mean it was right you know it was in that period of time Mm -hmm. um and and one of the things that i will that, that i will say to go back to you know when diane died it was clear to me that a part of my life died. Hmm. Um, and I, I can remember sitting there feeling, I can either decide, okay, I'm, you know, this is now, you know, I'm winding down, I'm done. Or I can go into effectively another incarnation in the same body. You know, I can take on a new a new wave, a new life, and I chose to take on a new life. Um, but it was, you know, it was definitely that kind of. Uh, I had to acknowledge and let go of parts of me that had gone. Um, but there was fresh stuff that came in, mm-hmm. and, and it. And for a few years, and when it was both Dark Night of the Soul, and I gave myself permission to be a kid again. Hmm. I, I told myself, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna grow into this new life. You gotta let yourself be a kid. Smile, smile, and and be playful, mm-hmm. and and you know, do things because they're interesting, not because of what the result will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was good. And then the foundation stones. Yeah, and that showed up just kind of intuitively. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Let's get into the foundation stones. Yeah, so let me describe them. And it's, okay. And it's really, you know, I, I spent, it was like 13 years editing in context. Okay. And we covered all kinds of different topics, everything from economics to art and ceremony to education to land use to, it was culture as broadly as an anthropologist would look at it. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I'd gotten to see lots and lots of actually quite promising new directions. Uh, and again and again, bump into the way in which the problem was humans. Uh, <laughs> so I felt that I didn't want to just start editing. You know, I didn't want to do in context again. But I wanted to draw together kind of what I learned out of that process and so the foundation stones were intended as uh, that kind of thing. And they're, it's not a blueprint. It's, the foundation stone's name is because it's stuff 
it's an invitation to build on. Mm. But at least if you use these, you can feel pretty sure that you've got a, a good foundation that you're building on. So the the there's and what are you what are you talking about? Like, are you talking about life in general? Um, yeah, if I get into it, it'll be a little it, yes. Okay, but, it, but it's uh, when I describe them, I think it'll help. Okay. Uh, so there's seven different topic areas. Okay. The first topic area is, is called what time is it? It's about where are we in history? What what's been the dynamics of culture? Um, and and I, I won't describe more because I want to stay at a high level at okay. this point. The second foundation stone is something that has been called, that I call tools for the journey. And we've got two pieces in that right now. One is human operating system literacy, which is about our psychology and, you know, bringing in modern neuroscience and that sort of thing. And the second one is systems literacy. So those are the, if we understand our, our, our psychological operating system, if you will, and understand the way systems work, then we understand an enormous aspect of the world. Um, this is kind of like taking the magic that was there in astrophysics, where if you understood 20th century astronomy, you could actually go out and understand an enormous amount of what was happening in the universe. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, if you understand human psychology and systems, then a lot becomes apparent. Isn't it... Uh it seemed to me that the human operating system was beyond psychology. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it was it was a, a somatic um, understanding too. Yes, a, an embodied understanding of the right. human, not just right. what's going on in the head, but what's right. going on in other places. The, the whole be, as mm -hmm. whole beings, yes, whole beings. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so in that sense, it's it's the whole human operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that's. Those are the tools for the journey. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one that we haven't gotten to yet, but I still, my intention is still there, uh, is something I call how connected is the universe? And with this one, what I want to do is to get in with my science hat, mm -hmm. but look at the, the empirical work that looks at... Uh, consciousness mm -hmm. and connections in consciousness uh, because there's there's actually quite a bit of really good stuff we've that the natural sciences were born in a traumatic time they were born in the midst of the Inquisition you know think back to Galileo being forced to deny what he knew mm -hmm. um, and others being burned at the stake and all this sort of thing and it's kind of like the, the emerging natural scientists and the Catholic hierarchy eventually came to this resolution uh, where they, they divided up the, the territory and blamed the witches. <laughs> uh, so the scientists said, we're only going to focus on what's externally observable observable. We're not going to deal at all with what's happening inside people. We will call that subjective and we'll look down on it and we'll say that's a no-no. Consciousness is out. We're only going to look at what's objective out there. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that their perceptions of what was out there depended upon their psychology. Um, and the church said, 
well, we're going to let the world and the devil, that's your stuff. You can deal with that. Right. Uh, but we're going to focus on, on our traditional stuff and people's souls. And, and, and so we've got this nicely d divided up. Um, and, you know, and if they're, and those folks who tune into what's happening inside them and somehow want to connect that into the world, well, that's all witchcraft. So we'll just, right. we'll just burn them. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's kind of bald to describe it that way, but hey, um, it, so it was a very traumatic beginning and it's created something in the culture of science that I know well, um, where if you traipse at all into that subjective realm, um, you get reminded that you may not be able to get any grants. Uh, you get, I mean, it's it's pretty... Ouch. Yeah, it's pretty clear that, you know, that's not what, if you're going to be a respectable scientist, that's not what you do. Uh -huh. um, the neuroscientists have been able to go into it because it was kind of their territory and they uh -huh. found their way in. Uh, but there's by now quite a bit of really interesting research around um, out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, um, remote viewing. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a whole variety of stuff that if we weren't so allergic to it, right, we would actually recognize it. So I'm not allergic to it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's actually a potential for a great healing uh, a, a great healing of that core empirical impulse that the sciences were built on to take that same... Because empiricism says experience trumps theory. Mm -hmm. And to take that willingness to say, well, there's some signal here in these experiences that people have been having for thousands of years. Let's better understand that. Yeah. Uh, let's get in there and, and work with it and not just push it away. Mm -hmm. um, so that opens up the whole, what people would describe as a kind of inner realm. Yeah. But, you know, how much is truly inner with it? I mean, it's, it, anyway, I won't get too far off into it. But that was stone three. Connectedness of how the connect, universe. Yeah, how connected is the universe? Hmm. And, and in that process, discover, including the physical ways, one of the things in the, in one of those emails in Bright Future Now, I talk about the way in which the atoms we're now breathing mm -hmm. were breathed by, you know, you name it, Caesar, uh, whoever. Uh, I love that image. You know, that, uh, so our bodies are these constant whirlpools in which all of other life is flowing. Atoms that have been in other life are flowing through us. The atoms didn't die. No. The atoms, and, and we... Within the normal physics, you would just say, but that's fine. They're just these inert bits. Mm -hmm. uh, we have no idea how much trail of consciousness those atoms actually connect with. Mm -hmm. um, it, maybe nothing, but to, to presume that we totally know at this point is hubris. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I, yeah, so that's three. That's three. Thank you. Four is um, living as a whole being. And it really looks at what it would be like to live in a culture that was, compared to ours, 
very greatly de-traumatized. And in touch with that connectedness that was there in Stone 3, um, and and in touch with all of ourselves as beings, mm -hmm. you know, and sort of imagine into, well, what would that mean? What would that feel like? What would that look like? Uh, more at the personal level than the outward level, because we'll get to that in the other stones. Um, so the so that's stone four, um, and stone five is whole system economics. And hmm. I love the juxtaposition between those two. <laughs> Because if you're going to live as a whole being, part of it is that you got to put together the way in that the material life works mm -hmm. and, the, and the economics work. Uh, but there are fresh opportunities that open up if you're not dealing, if you don't have to pay as high a fear tax, which our culture pays a huge fear tax um, at the moment, um, not only in military expenditures, but lots of other places too. Mm -hmm. um, and so whole system economics and then stone six is whole system governance and part of that is that governance is more than government hmm. you know how do we how do we when you have culture that is this rich co-evolving thing how do you really work with that in a way that helps to steer it mm -hmm. um, and then stone seven is something I call street smarts for change agents nice so it's sort of bring it all back down to so you've gone through this journey you've gotten a sense of what's the possible mm -hmm. how now do you put this um, into functional practice mm -hmm. and it's we're already getting into some of that in what's going on in the network mm -hmm. um, but that's fine uh, I, I still expect that eventually we will get around to that seventh um, what do you mean? Stone. We're already getting into what what aspect? Well, of it? the for instance, the the most recent salon that we had in the network, which was talking about cultural activism, okay, as as contrasted with political activism, okay, um, and touches on those street smarts. Mm -hmm. How have the complex adaptive system salons been going? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was kind of the third one of those okay. complex adaptive system salons. So these are the seven foundation stones. So um, it's been 17 years. Right. They're slowly coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, where where are you at? It seems like you, you have a... We basically have done presentations for the first two. Oh, okay. And I'm not... And that's those... Th the. Th this the, for the tools for the journey. There are two presentations. Okay. Uh, the the human operating system and the systems literacy. Right. Ones. Uh, no presentations yet for the others. Uh, whether they will take the form of presentations like what I've done, right. or some other form, which have been presentations that you've recorded a yeah. video, and then yes, you can see these on the website. Right. They're just freely available at context.org. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, are you moving sequentially through these things? Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. at you're at three right now. Right. The interconnectedness of the universe. Right. But took a pause mm -hmm. from working on the foundation stones yep. to build up the network. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually envision that the rest of the foundation stones will be more of a collaborative project. Great. Involving people in the network mm -hmm. rather than just me doing my research and yeah. synth synthesizing things. Mm -hmm. 
I'll probably still be involved, but... Uh, mm-hmm. The catalyst, I'm sure. Yeah, right. Uh, so when... I, and in uh, 2015, the uh, end of January 2015, when I'd completed the, the systems literacy yeah. presentation, there were two things that were really clear for me. One was I was exhausted. Hmm. Um, you know, this was, I couldn't just keep doing it the way I had been. Yeah. Um, and the other was that there was enough material there to start the process of an experiential program. Okay. Which is what Bright Future which Now is. Which is what I participated in. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and it was very much oriented towards not just an educational program, but something that, that creates a common ground for a network. Um, uh, among other things, so that I could have more people to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you needed some. You needed a feedback loop. Yep. Yeah, yeah. a real life right feedback loop. Yeah. Well, the the videos uh, and the work that went into the one and two, mm-hmm. mind blowing. Mm-hmm. I mean, just profound, timely, deep, and um, I recommend if anybody's. Um, interested in this, I, I highly recommend just going onto the web and taking a look at those because it, it really changes your perspective on where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, the the what time is it video mm-hmm. and the the transitions between tribal, empire, and planetary, mm-hmm. that is something that I think about every day. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it really provides a foundation for right. my thinking in the way that I'm moving through the world now. Right. Um, and that we're in this transition time between empire and planetary. And with that, I was hoping that maybe you could um, provide a quick summary of that. Like if, yeah. if people were to, because um, I, I start mentioning this in conversation mm-hmm. and then um, and then I get, immediately get questions, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which, right. which is great because yeah. then you, you engage conversation. Um but if someone were to say, well, what do, you, what do you mean when you talk about tribal, empire, and planetary um, eras? Right. And, and where are we at, and why does this matter? Right. So the, I look at culture as uh, through the lens of complex adaptive systems. And that complex adaptive system sounds awfully fancy and academic and all that. What it really means is a group of people where you have a lot of different players who have some level of autonomy from each other. So they're, so each one of those players has some range of choice, and each one is kind of figuring out its next steps. Uh, and uh, in that process, the way that culture functions can evolve and it has this kind of co-evolutionary quality where one person makes a change here, and then that stimulates another person to make a corresponding change, and then you get a third change, and then you get back to the first person who then changes yet again, um, and it all sort of moves together. Sometimes. But there are other times when the culture is very stable. So you have these stable times, and you have these transitionary times. We had a really long, as we as humanity had a really long, stable time back uh, before about ten or eleven 
5,000 years ago when essentially all of humanity was in, um, well, was was doing hunting and gathering. Mm-hmm. And so living in relatively small bands, your world was your tribe. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's the tribal era. Uh, the, the sort of academic term is the Paleolithic, the old Stone Age. Um, this is before any cities, before any writing, before anything like that. Um, so... That's one big, long cultural period with some pretty stable characteristics to it, uh, such as that regardless of where you look in the world, people are making their living, if you will, by foraging, by hunting, and by gathering. Um, That's what people did. Uh, And uh, their primary, their their high-tech form of communication was speech. Hmm. in songs and poems, but, uh, you know, just speaking. Um, and the way in which they were, the societies were organized were all around kinship, uh, both actual kinship and, and kinship as a metaphor. And they related to the world around them as, you know, all uh, Native Americans talk about all my relations. Hmm. So it's, you know, the, the, the deer and the buffalo and, and all of that is, is seen in kinship terms. So there's this very strong quality of kinship that serves as the unifying factor. It doesn't matter whether you're looking in um, ancient China, ancient Africa, ancient Middle America. Um, it's all the same pattern. Somewhere 12,000 years ago or so, we get the start of agriculture. And it doesn't matter exactly when that happens. What's important is that you shift from a somewhat nomadic existence to a, a settled existence. When you're doing agriculture, you're investing in your local soil. And so you start to become tied to the land and you can support a larger population concentration. So you, you get these communities that start to grow and grow in size. And, there's, and so we head into this transition time when the coevolution is happening. Um, population growth happens. Um, and as you get larger settlements, the, uh, our minds are only able to really know personally maybe a couple hundred people. You start pushing it beyond that, and you will slip into seeing other people as um, examples of categories. Hmm. Your, your, your mind just can't you can't have this the same level of intimate knowledge of, of 2,000 people that you can of 200 so as the settlement size grew you moved quietly but nevertheless significantly into these you know people were identified by their clan or, or other things of this sort uh, you also created storable and stealable wealth. That's big. That's big. Um, and, uh, and so there got to be social stratification that happened as well. And over a period of a few thousand years, there's all this dynamic that moves you away from where you were in the, those hunting and gathering bands. moves you eventually significantly away. And by the time... About 5,000 years ago, you get to the point of real cities and the start of writing and military bureaucracies. Okay. 
um, you're in a very different world than you were as hunters and gatherers. But you start into another stable period. And that's the empire, agricultural empires. And whether you're talking about ancient Egypt or Sumer or Indus Valley or China or stuff that was going on in Europe or Middle America, um, it's all the same pattern. And the, the social organization now is no longer kinship. It's violence-enforced, religiously sanctioned hierarchies. Same thing all over the place. And the main livelihood is agriculture. 90% of the population involved in agriculture primarily is serfs and slaves and, and peasants to some extent. It was an awful life. Um, and the high-tech form of communication is writing. About 500 years ago, we start into another destabilized transition time with the start of the Renaissance and the emergence of, of some of what went on with trade, the, um, the invention of the, of the printing press, the, mm -hmm. uh, the emergence of the natural sciences. All this happened in the frag politically fragmented area of Europe. Um, there was just as brilliant stuff happening in China, but it, got, it was suppressed from de destabilizing hmm. the society. That's interesting. It was happening on the other side of the globe. Yeah, right. But uh, in, in Europe, it was too fragmented to successfully su suppress this genie of innovation okay. that started to emerge. Um, and so that led this process in which people got more choice in their lives. Um, there was uh, old structures got shifted. Uh, and you still have a lot of the patterns that were there in the empire era at one level, but we also have new emerging patterns. So if you, if you look at our present time as still in the transition and look at it as a double exposure and peel back the empire characteristics, we know that there's still you know, violence-enforced hierarchies and we, <laughs> we know that there's still people involved in agriculture, clearly, but today the, there is no one main livelihood we have moved into a world that is much, much more diverse in terms of how people function. Um, the high-tech form of communication now involves a lot more visual aspects to it, um, as, as well as the written uh, and kinesthetic aspects, too. So we're getting back to the whole brain. Um, and the basis of social organization that isn't hierarchy is much more network and consensual, consensual collaboration, hmm. basically, is what's emerging. Uh, and if you look at the, the startup businesses, the businesses that, that really fly, there's a lot more collaborative spirit there than, than this sort of rigid command and control hierarchy. Uh, you, you don't get the kind of vibrant, innovative activity out of putting people into a, a rigid command and control structure. Um, so the, you know, where are we headed? In the, into the planetary era. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm giving you all this stuff because I think it's important to understand that, that we're looking at deep system changes uh, the, uh, that are not easy to turn over in an election. It's not like redoing the executive orders. Right. The, the stuff is much deeper than that. Um, and... So we are, 
one of the things I'm working on actually for a TED talk that I'll be doing in February. Oh, great. Um, TEDx. Um, it, and the current working title for that is In the Tipping Zone Between Dominance and Harmony. Hmm. And when I say tipping zone, you probably heard of the idea of tipping point. Yes, read the book. Right. So, but if you look closely enough, bring your magnifier, mm-hmm. it's always a zone. It's not actually a point. Mm. Um, and so dealing with one of these big historical trends, when you live through it, it feels like this, you know, whitewater. Right. Um, of, uh, of turbulence that is going on because mm-hmm. we're in the tipping zone. We've, we've had... 5,000 years, basically, when the six, the obvious success strategy was might makes right. Mm-hmm. The, you know, you wanted to be the dominator if you wanted to succeed in a worldly way. Um, you know, all kinds of examples of that. And with that went the idea that society was the real power, the real stuff. If you're going to be a realist, the real stuff in society was all about hierarchies. Uh-huh. And so you, if you wanted to be powerful, you got to a high spot. In get with the program. Get with the program. Defeat the others. Rise up in the hierarchy. Become yeah. win. Win. Right. Um, that works in situations where uh, people have relatively limited choice. It worked really well in the empire era because people were so bound to the land. Uh, so you could capture them basically. Right. They were trapped. Um, and so you could impose what you wanted to them uh, in a coercive way. As the market economy came in more and more and people had more choice, that it began to loosen up somewhat. Today, in the most vibrant parts of the economy, the people who really generate value have a lot of freedom of movement. You can't exactly get them to work by coercing them, forcing them into this cubicle and say, you will produce the next great invention. (laughs) It it just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. So the leading edge in the culture, the growing edge, the place where health is, is all in being a good collaborator, um, not being a dominator. Because when people have choice, they're going to go away from the dominators and gravitate to the good collaborators. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if you're going to be a good collaborator, you need to know how to embody what I will call the three harmonies. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to embody the harmony within yourself. You need to be able to embody a harmony with others. And and out of that, you need to embody a harmony with nature. Um, And when you can do all those three things, then you are magnetic in terms of the you know, people want to connect with you, they want to work with you, they want to do things with you. If you don't have harmony within, but seem to have harmony with others, that lack of harmony within will catch you. Mm-hmm. If you only focus in the quiet of your room on your harmony within, but then walk out into a public setting and get a- a- outraged, um, then y- you're only dealing with a certain kind of harmony within. Uh, y- you need to be able to make it real in in all aspects of your life. And if if you have both that harmony within and the harmony with others, I my experience is it's just a natural consequence that you appreciate the generosity of nature and find yourself wanting to work with nature in a in a collaborative way 
rather than wanting to dominate yourself over it. Uh, so the what that used to be, embodying the three harmonies used to be this lovely um, idealistic aspiration, but it wasn't a way to get worldly success. You know, you could do it, you know, and you could feel good about it personally, and maybe there were small groups that could do it, but, you know, get real. Uh, what people don't understand is that we have now moved far enough along in the tipping zone so that the route to success is through the three harmonies. The route to external worldly success is by getting better and better at the three harmonies. And that's increasingly where we're going. So if you want to skate to where the puck will be, forget the dominator thing. Learn to be really good with the harmony within, harmony with others, and the harmony with nature. Those are the people who are going to thrive in the world both today and the world that's emerging. And Donald Trump is providing such a fabulous example of what a failure the dominator approach is in today's world. You know, he's, he's a caricature of the dominator mentality and is attracted around him all the folks who gravitate towards that. Um, and the rest of the world is fleeing mm -hmm. from that. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know quite how the Trump era will play out, but at least at this point, mm -hmm. um, it, it ain't what it used to be, you know, the, in terms of being able to be the strong man who comes on and, right. you know, it, it's in, in our highly networked world, um, you, you, it just doesn't play that way anymore. <laughs> that is such good news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is such good news that we're at a point in time where, yeah, we might be kind of in the white water right now. Right. And it's it's turbulent, but we can see these patterns. And what we know now and what you're saying is if if you can find a harmony within and a harmony with others and you're a good collaborator, that success or progress – Right, will will be made in in a way that actually is beneficial for not only you but for others and for nature. Right. I love how you you brought the nature piece into it mm -hmm. because I feel like the um, environmental movement is um, often this thing where it's like trying to get people to focus their gaze on the environment. Like, mm -hmm. hey, wait, waving their hands, like, pay attention. Things aren't going so good for the environment over here, mm -hmm. you know. But what you're saying is, no, 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 this is this is almost a, a result of just doing the work of finding your own inner harmony and harmony with other people that it produces um, a an appreciation for the natural world. Right. And it it's like... It, the um, culmination of the um, the equation, right? You know that says okay. N now, now we can all be in harmony, and I and I think too that that eco perspective is kind of the a broader con broader consciousness that mm -hmm. we're moving towards. This um, right. this is all inclusion. Man, that's the best news I've heard in a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, it really is. I'm. How do I say this? I'm serious about bright future now. Mm -hmm. You know that it's there are all kinds of ways in which it's 
as much as the media might tell a different story because they're focused on what sells, right? Um, and they're focused on a shorter term, mm-hmm. and they're looking at it through an, an, basically an empire lens, uh, so they can't really see the planetary era aspects yet. Mm-hmm. But when you start to see the planetary aspects and look at the longer trends, yeah, um, yeah, there's, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, but the wind is at our backs, mm-hmm. um, and just realizing that, and then being able to step into it, uh, and the you know, and I will say that you know, bright future now, in many ways, is designed to focus on both the harmony within, the harmony with others, and the tools to be able to build the harmony with nature, mm-hmm. um, in a practical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do we how do we recognizing that there are no environmental problems, there are only environmental symptoms of human problems. How do we change the human structures? Right. Uh, how do we go to the project drawdown list of, you know, a hundred different things and move on them? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, people are already moving on yeah. them. But if we, if we chose to, we could turn what's happening with climate change around much, much faster mm-hmm. than most people realize. Um, it's just all those folks out there saying, no, no, that could never happen. No, no, no. Uh, uh, we, you know, no. Because they're stuck yep. um, in both, in some cases, special interest, self-interest. Hmm. Um, and in other cases, just not having the imagination to see what's possible. Right. A few minutes ago, you said you mentioned the 80-20. Mm-hmm. Um, Rule. I don't know if it's a rule or just a, an idea, but mm-hmm. um, I read that on your website too, and that was really helpful. And if I understood it correctly, the twenty percent is like the the amount of energy that we need to spend on resisting those right. things um, that are um, the injustices mm-hmm. in the world, and and then the eighty percent is the wind at our backs, is those things that are already moving in the direction of positive change right and those are the things that we, we should focus 80 percent of our energy on the positive things and right. not forget about the resistance but um as as just sort of a general proportion mm-hmm. for me that's helpful because i the resistance movement yes i'm definitely down <laughs> with the resistance however it doesn't motivate me mm-hmm. it 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 is it comes from the same energy as like digging in my heels. Right. And I mean, even the word resist is like, right. stop, you right. know, don't. Right. And it doesn't have any sort of um, uh, energy that's uh, that's moving me towards creativity or innovation or those mm-hmm. things that we, we need to focus on that 80%. Yeah. Well, in, you know, in many ways, the, the whole Trump phenomenon, the mm-hmm. stuff associated with that is a reaction to all the cultural changes that have been going on in the last few decades, mm-hmm. um, uh, many of which are moving us towards the planetary era. Uh, and people who don't like the greater range of inclusion, uh, inclusiveness, mm-hmm. uh, people who are accustomed to a more hierarchical social structure and don't like the way in which People who are in that category, those people, right. are now showing up in place, other places in the hierarchy. How can that be? Mm-hmm. We've got to get those things back in order. Um, so 
they're reacting to the success of these changes. Right. The best way to actually get beyond where we are now is to keep those changes moving. Mm -hmm. And most of those changes are things that move, and let me put it this way, where there are lots of opportunities to move forward that don't involve political change, but are uh, in the broader arena of cultural change. Mm -hmm. Um, People adopting new beliefs, new ways of doing things, etc. And yeah, so it's, if you wind up getting diverted from the from building the new yeah in order to resist the resistance i mean because they're really the resistance right if you know what i mean yes they're uh, the resistance to the movement to the planetary air right yes um and so it's just it wastes time wastes mm-hmm. energy which is not to say that there's because there's real damage that they can do there is a certain amount of the saying the necessary no yeah which is the resistance to to sort of help to minimize the damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to be too categorical about this, uh, but that whatever energy you feel you can free up to keep building the new, and when you're building the new, it it's not dramatic. It isn't going to make the newspapers. It takes often years mm-hmm. for the real consequences to show up. But if you look at things not on a month or week-long scale, mm-hmm. but look on a, on a decade-long scale, that building the new has more sustainable, meaningful consequences than the repeated efforts at resistance, mm-hmm. which just keep coming back and back in the same slots. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like you said, wasted energy. Right. Uh, resisting progress. We're not moving forward. Right with providing our energy there. So we need to get people to shift their energy. Right. And different people are in different situations. Right. You know, I mean, some people really are called to be on that front line doing that resistance. And I honor that. I think that's fabulous. But there will be a lot of people who what's available to them is the opportunity to somehow or another do more in themselves and in the systems and people around them to work on that, embody those three harmonies. Yeah. You know, uh, and if you keep doing that, and even in the midst of the resistance, you better get more harmony within, um, or you will burn out quickly. Yeah. How much of the um, the inner harmony is a surrender to to kind of a new way? Because when I think about, okay, well, I want to be. Um, I want to have an inner harmony or I want to be a harmonious person. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can uh, find myself in a trap of like applying the same sort of mindset. Well, is that would be if I do that, then I will get that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ego kind of creeps right in there and goes, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be a harmonious person. And then um, I'm going to accomplish these sort sort of outcomes. And, it uh, it sort of plays against itself. Yeah. What would your response to that be? Well, the I think that the harmony in a couple, in our sort of intimate personal relations, is a good model for understanding aspects of the harmony within. Hmm. 
in that there needs to be a certain amount of affection and uh, tolerance, uh, recogni recognizing the different. So, so what I'm saying is that for the different parts inside you, mm -hmm. and we're all much more complex beings than our culture normally gives credit for. So, uh, and a lot of the lack of harmony within is conflict between different parts of, you know, the, the part of us that wants to succeed at work and the part of us that um, really feels the need to be playful and the part of us that um, is shy about being out there with people and another part that um, really likes it being being gregarious. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just because of our our whole growth experience, we we wind up with an accumulation of what in the course we talk about as subpersonalities, mm -hmm. uh, and in order for those subpersonalities to be to be in harmonious relationship with each other they they need to hear each other just as in a couple you need to be able to really hear each other mm -hmm. and you need to have some empathy even if you don't agree you st still need to be able to have that empathy uh, so it's those i think are are really important aspects of being able to develop that harmony within and it's in that process it helps if there's some humility right and the humility then goes along it's there is a kind of acceptance and uh, you can you can say surrender but it isn't again to not get too categorical the the way that i look at co-creation uh -huh. is that we all as conscious beings we only control a portion of what happens around us mm -hmm. but we still have to show up to do our part so being either approaching things either from the frame that i'm in total control mm -hmm. master of my destiny you're going to run into problems with that mm -hmm. Or if you say, well, I, you know, what can I do? I'm just being carried along by this stream. And, <laughs> uh, you can run into problems with that, too. Right. Um, so it's that willingness to show up in the fullness of who you are, mm -hmm. knowing that that's only part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the fullness of who you are involves all that complexity inside you mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be embraced and not suppressed. Yeah, I think my mind is going to the, uh, the beginning of our conversation when you mm -hmm. talked about the spiritual traditions, mm -hmm. you know, um, all kind of uh, coming together and in um, some sort of unified way of, a, of, a, of approaching our existence. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, when you mention humility, I really feel like humility is a step towards faith mm -hmm. and having faith in uh, something mm -hmm. that will happen um, that is out of your control yet you're informing it right 
And I, and I think that's yeah. similar to to how, how you were describing that. Yeah. And I, I do want to say relative to the traditions. Yeah. My sense is that the next step historically, culturally, mm-hmm. there is, well, a couple of next steps. One of them is going to be uh, moving away from the competitive sense of exclusivity and um, appreciating what the other traditions provide uh, and... Uh, but still being able to say, and this is some, this tradition speaks to me. Right. Um, and so not needing to meld them all together, um, but more having a recognition that different maps right. on, on a same territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, someone once told me that uh, about, they, they got a bunch of theologian types mm-hmm. together from different religions yeah, and they argued all over the place, and then they brought together no. a bunch of <laughs> contemplative, uh, you know, monk types. Yeah, from the various different traditions, uh-huh. and they had a great time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, in part, that's because the monk types actually have some experience, um, and they're they're it's not in practice. Yeah, they're, and so they could recognize in the other. The, the the commonality of experience right which is foundational yeah to empathy right right mm-hmm. so um, it's I think as we move into a new relationship with w- what we think of as spirituality or religion mm-hmm. it's going to be in some ways simultaneously simpler and more profound hmm. um, it, and and you know no if we no longer need to have all of that political trapping right you know we, we no longer need to be supporting the 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 empire mm-hmm. basically in the religious structure uh, then that's going to provide a lot of clarification mm-hmm. and freedom yeah mm-hmm Good. Well, um, I'm feeling like we're getting toward the end here. Mm-hmm. I do want to give you a chance to uh, just talk about Bright Future now. Sure. Because um, we've talked about a, a lot of the different things that are mentioned mm-hmm. in, in Bright Future now, but just to give people a synopsis of, right. of what that is, um, if they're interested. Sure. So the the, the sort of this is a test, Robert. Right. The, the <laughs> out, it is. It's a challenge. Uh, the, the outward aspects yeah. are that Bright Future Now is a, a course that makes use of online um, tools. So we have people all over the world involved. Um, it involves morning emails. It involves interaction with video conferencing, video chats. Um, it's set up so there's a lot of human scale interaction uh, to it. We limit the cohort size to 21 people, and then within that we have things like triads. So there's a lot of interactive stuff at the same time that we go through what you could describe as core inner and outer skills and tools that are needed for, the, for someone in the 21st century 
who wants to be actively engaged in helping to move the culture forward. Uh, so the, the first week is about self-awareness and self-compassion. Uh, the second week is about getting beyond categorical thinking and being able to see the world in terms of territories and maps. Uh, and, and this brings us towards systems thinking. And the third week is around child development and adult character, looking at a lot of the common variety, sort of garden variety um, traumas that almost everyone carries and how we can uh, both move ourselves personally out of that, but also move the culture out of that. The fourth week is around systems, and we apply it particularly to, we use the example of your own habits as a system and how by understanding the, the dynamics of your habit system, you can figure out where are the good places to intervene. And that's not just for yourself personally, but groups have habits, institutions have habits, cultures have habits, relationships have habits. If you know how to change your own personally, you can change the others. And then the fifth week is around collaboration and skills for collaboration things like decision-making and leadership. And the sixth week is what we call from vision to reality. And so it's how to actually take something and manifest it. So it has a certain amount of project management stuff, but also other things that build on the first five weeks. Um, so it's, I don't know anywhere that weaves together all those into a system. And uh, six weeks may sound like a long time, but it goes by pretty fast. Um, and, and, and that's intentional to be able to make the linkages, the, the, the bridging between those, all those different pieces, uh, all in the service of supporting you as an individual to be a better change agent in these times and also to support groups because it creates common ground so if you have a group of people who've done this together, then they have all these wonderful tools to be able to work with each other. And the course is the gateway into the Bright Future Network. Essentially, everyone who has taken the course then becomes part of the Bright Future Network. And in the network, we're taking it in a more freeform way, but we are building up our capacity to support one another as we act as change agents. Great. Yeah, my experience was that the, the content is really deep and profound, and it comes at you quickly because you're getting it every morning via email. Mm -hmm. um, and you have some opportunity to talk about the content in your triad mm -hmm. or in with your ally. Um, Kai, if you're out there. Right. What's up, buddy? <laughs> and, and then on the weekends, there are these group meetings um, where everybody... Um, comes together. So plenty of opportunity to interact. Um, but yeah, it comes at you quickly for six weeks and it kind of flies by. And then um, the network, it seems like um, sort of fertile ground for new ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are coming up with new ideas and new projects that have come out of sort of the process of the six weeks and they're actually implementing them in and uh, testing them out and, and making a go at it with right. the support of the people who have these some or the first two foundation stones. Right. <laughs> right. So we've got two out of the seven right. and we're making a go for it. Yeah. But I highly recommend this for, um, for everyone. Mm-hmm.
alive, if you're alive out there, yeah. <laughs> um, these will create a great context for you to understand um, not only where we are in um, in time, mm-hmm. in the space-time continuum, but mm-hmm. um, also culturally as as well as some of the very practical things that we can do as individuals to to work on to create the three harmonies that will help us all create a more graceful transition to the planetary era. Right. Right. Isn't that, isn't that the mission or the vision or? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, 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 the vision is very much that we are moving to the planetary era and the challenge is how gracefully will we do it? The metaphor here is that there is a birth underway. We get to be midwives uh, and we get to influence, uh, you know, is it, it, births can be awful. Uh, you wind up with a dead baby and a dead mother uh, at the one extreme, and in another extreme, it can be an ecstatic experience. Uh, we're not going to be at either pole, but we get to have some choice about how much scarring is left by this transition and, and how graceful and how quick can it be and other things like that. that. To me, that's the real calling for this time and this generation or generations that are alive today is to really do what we can to make this transition to be as smooth, graceful, and um, I want to say quick, but it's we don't want to force it too fast. It, it needs to have its time, but in in that sort of thing. Yeah. So I do want to just um, say here that the next the next course starts October seventh. We do them seasonally. There's a winter, spring, fall, uh, summer. Uh, fall courses um, and uh, you can find out about the course at context.org mm-hmm. perfect um, context.org yeah you, and you can find all those articles too yeah. that Robert was uh, mentioning and definitely go on there and um, watch the videos uh, the what time is it video um, will give you a great kind of foundation uh, mm-hmm. for all this material well uh, thanks again yeah for well, thank have, you yeah, yeah this is great uh, I appreciate it and um, I'm sure we'll be talking again and seeing each other mm-hmm. in the network yes indeed. all right all right Good. bye everyone and hello everyone if you're still here I did want to mention one thing that I failed to mention in the introduction which is that if you'd like to listen to the full unedited version i'm uploading that one as well so no bells and whistles um, from start to finish when i pressed record on my laptop until the end of the conversation so what you missed and that you didn't hear is really robert's journey and his story as he went through those different phases of his life as an astrophysicist changed his focus to sustainability um, went through some pretty tough times when he lost his wife suddenly to a brain tumor and was a single parent. So really meaningful stuff. And if you are interested in hearing that, feel free to check that out in the same location.